If you picked up an outline on your way in, you can pull it out. If you opened your Three Crosses app, you can look up where we are today. We're in this third installment of this Advent series that we're in called The Longest Night. And we're going to start today in the book of Isaiah. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, please, chapter 44. You'll find that on page 1130 on that book rack Bible in front of you if you're using that Bible. Isaiah 44. Beginning in verse 24. If you're there, say amen. Okay, most of us are there. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it to nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be built, and of their ruins, I will restore them, who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, And I will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Well, this is an encouraging section of scripture. It's prophetic scripture. It's actually written 200 years before the events of this scripture actually take place. Which is where we're going to focus our time this morning in a period of Israel's history that is somewhat obscure. And I realize I'm talking to a crowd of people today who I don't know what you understand about Old Testament history. Pastor Danny for the last couple of weeks has been walking us through the longest night. Starting with the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 7 where the sign would be that a virgin would be with child, would give birth to a son... And his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. That was about 750 B.C., 8th century B.C. in the Old Testament when that prophecy was made. And a lot has taken place and a lot of time rolls by between that moment, the prophecy of Isaiah, and actually the birth of Jesus Christ. And we are somewhere in the middle of that in this series Last week, we looked at the fact that Israel went from the context of Isaiah 7 when they were drifting and in rebellion to God and God kept sending prophets, turn, turn around, repent, come back to me. And no, they just kept pushing God aside, just like we oftentimes do. We hear the message of God and we push it aside. And so God allowed them to go into a a sin-induced season of suffering where they suffered for their sin. Seventy years they were taken away into Babylon. We call this the exile of God's people. Nebuchadnezzar comes into the southern kingdom of Judah. He wipes it out. The northern kingdom is already gone, 722 B.C., 586 B.C. Here comes Nebuchadnezzar. Judah falls, and all the inhabitants of Judah, or many of them at least, are taken off into exile. 
And God tells them, you're going to stay there for a while, so you should hunker down and and pray for the prosperity of the city. We looked at that last week. And then now we come to a season where there's going to be a little bit of of a hope. Uh, It's been kind of dark times in this series so far in terms of reflecting over Israel's history. But today we look at this season of Israel, which we would call uh, in theological terms or in terms of studying the scripture, the post-exilic time of Israel. This is where Israel is actually going to be dispatched, able to go back to the city of Jerusalem. They go in three waves. They go under Zerubbabel, they go under Ezra, they go under Nehemiah. And if you're putting context in this in terms of the Old Testament, you'd be considering the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which we're going to look at today. And then you would also consider the book of Esther and then the prophets of Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, and uh, and Malachi. And so those are the, the post-exilic prophets and the post-exilic books that, refra- that frame sort of the season of Israel from about uh, middle of the 6th century BC all the way to the middle of the 5th century BC. So if I've confused you, I apologize. But anyway, that's where we are. And I hope that you're getting a little context as to where, where we are. And all along in this, we've looked at this as being sort of a long journey, a long night uh, journey. And today we're talking about building a way back because that's what this little portion of Israel's history is about. If you're taking notes, I'd like, you to, suggest, I'd like to suggest three simple movements in this framework of Israel's history being this post-exilic time, the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then at the end of the message, for just a few brief moments, we're going to look at the inexplicable circumstances that came upon Joseph and try to draw a little bit of a connection between his life and what's going on with Israel at this time. And to get us going, we're going to just start right into the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And you can actually turn to Ezra if you would. And we're going to just actually read a text from Ezra in just a couple of minutes. You'll find that on, uh, what page is that on? That's on page 1497 in that book rack Bible, the book of Ezra. If you're looking for Ezra, it comes after the books of 2 Chronicles, First and 2 Chronicles. If you're in Kings, go right. If you're in Samuel, go right. If you come to Psalms, you've gone too far right, go back. Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, right in there. So Ezra chapter 1 is where we're going to be looking at for a little bit this morning. It's an amazing text of Scripture. God's Word is so amazing. And I want to show you that. But here's where we're going to launch off. Here's the first movement of the sermon this morning. I want to show you that there are times during every long journey when certain things provide a renewed sense of hope. There's this idea of hope that comes out of this section of Israel's history. And hope is such a good thing. You know, if you've been strung out on drugs, you know, like David's story today. There's something about thinking about hope. There's something about there's a better life waiting for me. Maybe you're a parent of a student who's going through real trouble right now with drugs or alcohol or, or you know, some sort of relationship issue that's not going well or, or just estranged from you. Or maybe your life is feeling like you're in the dumps or maybe your job is over, you're homeless or whatever it is that's going on in your life. There's something about hope that is amazing. And in this little section of Israel's history, there's this parting of the sky, this gray dark night that they've been under is sort of parting a little bit because of this phenomenal experience of, of being able to go home. And I've, I've thought about the long journeys that I've taken in my life, just in a physical sense. I think of when we used to pack our kids up and take them off across country. My sister lives in Minnesota 
And when our kids were small, we would pack into our little Volvo sedan and we would load it up with the, you know, the luggage carrier on top and the bike rack on the back and we would head across to, you know, Minnesota. And I can remember, you know, everything would start great. We'd get out of Castro Valley, we'd get on the freeway and right around Sacramento, our kids would be going crazy, you know, like, when are we going to get there? It's like Sacramento. I mean, we're like 2,000 miles from our destination. And it just seems so far away, you know, it's just crazy. Well, look around the beautiful sights. Let's play the game of looking at sights. And so, you know, you go up over the Sierras. It's beautiful, you know, all the mountains and everything. And then you come down into Reno. And then it's like, you know, flat, desert, nothing there. And then, you know, Dad gets a little bored and he starts speeding. And then he gets pulled over by a police officer and... You know, there's all these kinds of things that are going on. Little entertaining, hopeful moments along the way. But there was nothing like seeing a rest stop when you needed it, or a bathroom when you needed it, or seeing, I remember seeing the golden arches. You know, I love the golden arches, you know, because that meant for me, I'm a simple guy. That meant an ice cream cone. That could just keep me going for miles and miles and miles. There's something about a trip like that that reminds you that as good as those little hopeful marks are along the way, the greatest thing was seeing the mileage actually peel off and realize that we went from 1,200 to 1,800 to actually 2,000 miles and then we were there. And this is kind of the way it is with Israel. There's this syncopation of moments where there seems to be hope and then they're back on the road again and there's a lot of stuff that's going on in their lives. But nothing could have compared to the beautiful thing for Israel than to, to recognize that their, their days were, uh, were finally being completed as far as their, uh, their exile was concerned. And here they were, hearing from Cyrus. Let's go to the book of Ezra, chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Okay, we'll stop right there. Now, we just read in Isaiah 44 that God said Cyrus was going to do that. 200 years before Cyrus even comes on the scene. When Isaiah said those things, it was Babylon that was actually in charge. It was the world empire. And God, looking through history, actually gives the name. This is amazing. This is mind-boggling. For any of you that wonder, can you trust the Bible? It's incredible that this kind of history is shown to us, that God actually speaks names. The Persian, Cyrus the Great. You can look him up today. Go to Google. He's there. And God says, Cyrus the Great is going to be my shepherd. He's going to be the one to open the doors for my people to leave their captivity and to go back. And for the children of Israel, this was like a a day where the sky started to part and allowed them to go home and begin to build back up what they had lost, the temple, the surrounding areas of Judah, where everything had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar when he pulled all the goods of the temple and raised the temple R-A-Z-E-D, knocked it down, leveled it, and made it that which was a rubble. And so the people go back 
under Cyrus, and by the way, the Medo-Persian Empire, they were known for this. They were known for sort of this more gracious response to those who had been displaced in exile, actually letting people, displaced people, go back to their homes. And this is what Cyrus did, and after Cyrus, Darius did it, and this was a, a beautiful picture in Israel's history. But don't, don't miss what's going on here. Let's, let's just take, we talk about our own journeys, we talk about the journey of Israel. Let's think about where we are in our spiritual journey today. Consider where you are right now today. Are you in a season where it's dark and bleak? Has the clouds sort of come out, uh, you know, spread out a little bit? Are you seeing a little blue sky? And if that's happened in your life, then, then you can recognize that God's at work. God wants you to see that there's some blue sky. He wants to syncopate the darkness of our lives with, with hope. And he wants to give us hope. And our hope today is, of course, in our Lord Jesus Christ. But I think about the, the distance where we sometimes look at our lives where we are and where we hope to be. And just think of the gracious ways that God does it. He provides to us his word. He provides to us his spirit. He provides to us his people. There are people around us that have had big impact in our lives. Uh, chances are you're sitting around someone today that's had some kind of an impact on you, either inviting you to come in, letting you know that you're loved, letting you know that God loves you, that he's not forgotten you. And if you're here today and you feel like God's sort of like, opening the sky to show you that he's not forgotten you, then you should hold on to that. That should be a really beautiful part of your worship experience today. And, and if we're going to move from that, what I've found oftentimes when we, there are times in our journey when hope is, is renewed, what often comes out of that, this is a second movement now, I want to just talk a little bit about when our hope is renewed, we often start rebuilding. There's stuff in our lives that need to be rebuilt. So we actually go to work on this stuff just like the children of Israel, just like the people of Israel did when they were let back out of Babylon to go back to their, to their homes. And, uh, you know, you look at this in waves, and there's a lot of history to cover here. I'll throw a couple things out. I don't know how much of this is in your notes, but uh, first of all, they went back in three waves. First, under Zerubbabel. Don't you love that name? Hi, I'm Zerubbabel. I'm Zerubbabel. <laughs> Zerubbabel, 50,000 Israelites went back to Jerusalem. And then later, about 75 years later, uh, under uh, Ezra himself, Ezra was able to take a group, a much larger group, back uh, to the land. And then after Ezra, Nehemiah. So you've got these, the context here, you've got first Zerubbabel taking this first unit back and they're, they're going to work on the foundation of the temple and they start working on the foundation and there's problems and there's enemies and there's political issues and the thing gets shut down. And this is where the prophets Haggai and Zechariah step up and they start encouraging the people, hey look, you know we got to get this done, this is part of our worship, it's central to our worship, we need the house of God. And I think about some people that are here today. It's like, how long has it been since you've been in the house of God? Now, this is not the temple. This is not Jerusalem. But there's some corollary. This is where God's people meet. This is sort of a place where we symbolically realize that God meets with us, right? Now, we're going to leave here in a few minutes, and God doesn't stay in the building. Are you following me on that? I mean, God goes with us as we go. He comes with us. He rides along the praises of his people. But here we are. This is a place that's sort of very precious to us. And there's lots of places like this throughout our community where God's people gather. But think about when was the last time you were in the house of God? For the people of Israel coming back out of exile, it had been forever. It had been 70 years that they had been to the place that God had set up as a symbol of his presence. And they couldn't wait to get at actually building it out and seeing what God was going to do as a result of it. 
And so Zerubbabel goes back. This is 536. And then Ezra goes back and then Nehemiah goes back. And let's just take a look at, kind of for example, let's go over to Ezra chapter 3. And we'll see the foundations built uh, there in chapter 3, verse 11. It says, with praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures, his love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They were able to build this foundation. But notice what happens next, verse 12. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while there were many others shouting for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people had made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. What's going on here? Commentators don't really know. Do the old, are the older people weeping because the new temple is not as grand, the foundation's not as big, it's not going to be as powerful, or maybe they're just weeping over the fact that finally, finally they're home, they're back in this place we really don't know, but this is quite a scene where the foundation is finally laid. The foundation comes down. And then later, uh, the, the actual temple itself is rebuilt. Go to chapter 6, and you'll see the temple is actually built. This is about four years into the first, actually it's 20 years into the first coming back of the people of Israel. It took them about 20 years because of all the stalls and stops that the temple uh, had along the way. But through Haggai, Zechariah, encouraging the people, they finally got the job done. It says in verse uh, 14, So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, a descendant of Edo. They finished building the temple according to the command of God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So you can see, even through these kings, we've got Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, the king, when Esther comes on scene, remember that. And so just give a little history history to what's going on in the region there and then it said look at this the temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius that would have been March of 515 BC if you want to take notes on that 515 BC here's the temple it's finally built and everyone's like yes it's done it's so exciting the temple's rebuilt and then the city walls were broken down for the same reason that the temple had been destroyed. And so Nehemiah comes, and the book of Nehemiah is all about building the wall, and he's go, he goes through a lot of conflict and problems. It's a beautiful story of how God's people rally together. They build the wall. And why do they build the wall? They build the wall, even though they're under the authority of a different kingdom, it's still Medo-Persia at this time. They're building the wall to secure. And Medo-Persia said, it's okay. As long as you cooperate with us, you can have your city, you can have your wall, you can have your security, you can do all that stuff. And that was a beautiful thing. And the people of God are like, they're just excited. The, the temple's rebuilt. The wall is rebuilt. But then there were spiritual problems with the people. And Haggai and Zechariah take all their time in ministry to say, look, not only do we need, to, we need the, the, the walls to be built, the city to be raised up, but we need a spiritual reformation. This is where Ezra's work really comes in. Ezra the priest, he comes along and he really begins preaching the reform of the people. And this is a time in Israel's history where the people actually start to reform. And they do some amazing things. Uh, and if you're taking notes, I'm just going to give you a couple, three things that I see in both Ezra and Nehemiah that talk about when there's a resurgence of spiritual life in us. First of all, this confession of sin. You see that in in Ezra 10 and Nehemiah chapter 8. 
this confession of sin. People get up and say, we have wronged the Lord. We have sinned against the Lord. When was the, oh man, when was the last time you confessed sin to anybody? Now hopefully in the context of the body of Christ, we're doing that a lot. Why? Because we're sinners. We kind of put this pretense on. We pretend that everything's great, no problem in our lives. I'm glad I've got some men in my life where I can confess sin to. I can talk about things that haven't gone right in my life. That's a beautiful thing. And, and hopefully, you know, Christians are not sinless, but hopefully we sin less, right? So there's a difference there. We're not sinless, but we sin less as we grow in our walk with Christ. But we fall into sin. We have things that happen. We make mistakes. We do things that are stupid. Fill in the blank. And so we need to be confessing sin. And this is what you see in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Spiritual reform, a mark of spiritual reform, is people confessing their sins, Another mark of spiritual reform is people get excited about the word of God. The word of God. And you see this in, in uh, Nehemiah 8 where Ezra comes and he comes up on this platform. They've rediscovered, they've gotten the law of God back out and Ezra starts to read. And if you're there, if you just skip over to Nehemiah, you can see it there with your own eyes. Why am I talking about it without looking at it? It says in Ezra 8, Ezra opened the book, verse 5, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Look at this. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites step in. And they, as the book of the law is read, verse 8, they make it clear, giving its meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. That's kind of the role of the preacher, if you ask me. Kind of interpreting, kind of reminding people this is what it means, this is what it says, this is what it means by what it says. And this is what's going on in Nehemiah's day. There's a spiritual reform going on. Why? Because people are, number one, what? Confessing their sin. Number two, they're alive in the word of God. And thirdly, it's a beautiful thing. What happens next is that there's a joy. There's a joyous response. And Nehemiah, verse 10 of chapter 8 of Nehemiah Uh, He says, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is our what? (laughs) Okay, I'm just reading this. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And man, what a beautiful thing that is. So here's, I'm just going to say, Pastor Larry's saying that if you're looking for spiritual reform, these are three uh, testaments or, or three evidences of spiritual reform in your life. There's confession of sin, there's a love for the word of God, and there's a joy in your heart. So, is spiritual reform going on in your life? Should be, because here's what happens. When you realize that, um, that God is kind of parting the skies a little bit, uh, we go about rebuilding some things in our lives too, don't we? And we go about uh, renewing our sense of, of uh, foundation. There's a spiritual foundation work that needs to happen in our lives. We work on our spiritual foundation. We recognize the importance of being with God's people, worshiping with God's people. It's kind of foundational stuff. You know, I talk to people all the time. They're like, where do I start with this whole journey with Christ? And I say, well, a good, an easy way to start is just start joining us on Sundays. Follow along. Let's go on the journey together. We need to go together and, but it can't just be Sunday. We need, every day we need to spend, check in with the Lord, get time in his word. I talk to people that are new believers and say, you know, read God's word every single day because if you're looking at Sundays as your only time to sort of get input for where you are in your spiritual journey, oh man, I can just tell you right now, you're gonna be in a heap of trouble around Wednesday. 
and Thursday and Friday and oh, the weekend and oh no. And then you come back on Sunday. And this is the rhythm of a lot of people's lives. Go to church on Sunday, kind of get things squared away and then just see the slide all through the week, crash and burn on Saturday, come back on Sunday, get renewed again. And that's not the way God wants it. He wants renewal, but structure, foundation needs to happen. Second thing that needs to happen is we need to work on security. And what I mean by security is I mean as Nehemiah built the walls of the city to keep the enemy out, so believers need to have good boundaries in their lives. And we need to be very careful about stuff we let back into our lives, stuff that we've walked away from, stuff that is always crouching at the door. And it starts with our attitude, starts with what's going on in our heart and our mind. All sin starts inside. It's not the external stuff. It's the internal stuff that really messes with us. And so we need to have good boundaries. And there are some friends that are influencing us more than we're influencing them in a negative way. So we need to kind of put some distance between us and those kind of folks until we can get our structure together, until we can get our lives to a point where we can actually start shedding some light on their lives and helping them. Do you follow me on what I'm saying here? And this is so, so many of us have gotten into trouble. There are people not here today because they didn't have the proper boundaries set up in their lives. And as soon as they started walking with Christ, as soon as the blue sky opened up and they began to walk with God and see the joy of his, his spirit in their lives, suddenly the clouds start coming back over because they don't have good boundaries in their lives. And then we form some spiritual disciplines in our lives, like the reform uh, era of Ezra and Nehemiah. We, go, we establish habits of Bible reading, prayer, fasting, um, solitude with God. I mean, there's a lot of disciplines that we begin to develop in our lives as followers of Christ. And again, all this is not so that we can have a relationship with God. All of this is established because we have a relationship with God. And his relationship with us demands attention and care and thoughtful reflection and being cautious about the stuff we allow into our lives. Beloved, I'm talking to you today not as one who's above you, but one is with you and recognizing that we've all got stuff where we need to be very careful to establish disciplines and boundaries that are appropriate in our lives and have a foundation that is strong so that our house is built on the rock. And I see that parallel from Ezra and Nehemiah's day right up to our own day today. Which brings us to the last little movement in this little, ser- this little sermon this morning. And that is that um, here they are, they're back in the land, and all this stuff is going on. But watch this. If you look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you find at the very end of Nehemiah, all kinds of problems are going on. The people are really not sacrificing the way they ought to. Even the book of Malachi shows us that. They're bringing used offerings to God. The people are not really walking in accordance with the law of God. They're going through motions. They're checking boxes. But here's the deal. You come back in the land. You get going on the right track. But pretty soon you're just checking boxes. You're going through routine. And it's not meaningful to you like it once was. And all of a sudden you're, you're kind of scratching your head going, I feel like I'm just back where I started. Think about the people in Nehemiah and Ezra's day. They've been through exile, a sin-induced season of suffering. And now they're back in the land. The temple is built. The city walls have been restored. But they're cutting each other up. They're dividing over stupid stuff. They're not walking in wholeness. They don't have integrity of life. And it's like Ezra and Nehemiah are going, ay, 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 ay. We're here again. This is the same old stuff. Boy, I don't know. I see the rhythm of that in a little way in my own life too. Where sometimes, you know, you you feel like you've got these big breakthrough seasons in your life and then one day you go, I'm still struggling with the same dumb stuff, right? 
Any of us feel like that? It's okay, it's just me. This is the way I am sometimes. Where I just feel like I'm just back where I started from. But but God's showing me that there's a rhythm in my life. And the, the rhythm is different now from the days of the Old Testament. Thank you, Lord. That we're no longer under the old covenant where where my sin just automatically brought consequence in my life. But where now in my life, even when I fall, even when I sin, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to my life through faith. My righteousness doesn't come by how good I am. And God doesn't punish me because of the sins of my life. Yes, there are consequences to sin. Hear me out on this. But the sin of my life has been completely 100% paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And by his blood, I stand before any person and I stand before God righteous by faith alone. Oh, what a miracle that is. And we're under the new covenant. This is not the old covenant. It's important that we realize the difference, but the similarities are still there. And this is where I just share with you in this third little movement that, that rebuilding isn't always necessarily all that God has in mind for us. What, we, what God has in mind for us and thankfully comes through the new covenant, what he has in mind for us is that we have a new heart. You know, some of us look at Christianity as kind of like getting a new start. And, and yeah, I agree. I mean, it's good to have a new start. And Christianity, coming to Christ, yes, we can say it's a new start. But it's more than a new start. It's a new heart. God wants to change everything from the inside out. It's not like he's just scratching the past and now you can start fresh It's that he has demolished the past and he has given you a brand new life. You become new. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a brand new creation under God. This is a beautiful promise. So if today you're kind of feeling stuck, you feel like you're just checking boxes in your life, you're kind of going through the religious routine, I got good news for you. You got to dump the religious routine and you got into and you got to explore the beauty of a relationship that if you know Christ, maybe you've been holding Christ back or you've been sort of like walking in a way that just is according to the, you know, the the routine of your life and God wants to just blow all that away and give you a daily beautiful moment by moment experience with him. And that's what we're yearning for, even in this series. And what happens when you get a new heart? Well, a little bit of what happens is what happens in the life of Joseph. And I know we're kind of out of time here, but let me just quickly go to Matthew chapter 1. Let's just draw a couple little dotted lines between Joseph's experience as the human father of Jesus. Joseph is told, probably by Mary, verse 18, Before they came together, Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Take Mary home to be your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill What the Lord had said through the prophet, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home to be with his wife. This is an amazing story. It's it's inexplicable. It's unexplainable. 
But I want to just point out that when your heart totally belongs to the Lord, here's three things that happen when you're in the dark, long night of your life. Number one, like Joseph, you consider what's before you. You consider. Joseph considered what was before him. And that's because this is was in his heart. Trusting God with all our hearts is the only way to get through the longest night. He considered what to do. Now be careful when you're considering because Joseph considered to put her away quietly in divorce. He considered to say, Mary, uh, everything's off. He considered that. So be careful in your consideration of things. But it is important to consider. The second thing in your consideration is Joseph listened to God for sp- to speak. And in a dream, we don't know how this happened, but God revealed to Joseph in a dream through an angel of the Lord. This may have been the pre-incarnate Christ himself speaking about himself being born. I don't know. It's the angel of the Lord. It's a picture in the Old Testament. We have all the way through the pre-incarnate Christ, angel of the Lord. He hears God speak to him and he says, don't freak out about this. Don't unplug what you're doing with Mary. Mary is my chosen one and you're the one to be the father of this little baby. And then what happens in verse 24? Joseph woke up and did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. Uh, Joseph shows a posture of obedience. So he considered, he listened, and he obeyed. And all the way through the Bible, we find this beautiful refrain about the importance of obedience. In the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 15, 22, Samuel says to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. There's nothing greater in the heart and mind of God than true, total, complete obedience to the will of God in our lives. And Joseph shows us a little bit about what needed to happen in the children of Israel during the post-exilic days is that even though they were back in the land, they had built the temple and the walls of the city were refreshed and they were spiritually reformed, there was still something missing. They were still lacking. And what they needed was a new heart and God promised them. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel chapter 36, I'm going to put a heart of flesh in you. You're going to feel for me. You're going to understand my ways, not by rote, but by spirit. And this is what he wants for you and me today too. And because we are under the new covenant, that day has come. We celebrate Advent because Jesus has come. Amen? We look back. But Advent also celebrates the coming of Christ. And we can trust the scriptures just like we trust the Old Testament that prophesied his coming. So we trust the scriptures that prophesy his return. And we are waiting for that day. And Advent is a time where we just sort of bring the aperture in close and we say, God, you are amazing. In this dark, long night, God gives us hope.